0: So, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, He might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. morning, y'all. It's good to be back with you. When I'm gone, I actually, uh, I miss you people, really. Yeah. Or at least some of you, anyway. It, uh, it always does my uh, heart happy when uh, I can announce that Scott Alexander's in the house. Scott's back. Scott was our uh, fearless leader for many years uh, until uh, he felt called to uh, take his family and go to Haiti, uh, which is where he's been for the last several years. And I think you're doing a reception afterward to kind of update on the ministry and stuff. So you want to make sure to catch that um, right after the service up in the Kids Crossing area. So one of the things we're we're asking is, have you ever wondered how this whole Christianity thing started in the first place? Like, who started it? How did it take off? How how did it get to the point that it became so relevant, uh, prevalent in the world, that it's actually now the largest religion in the world? How, How does that kind of thing even happen? How does a whole religion, like, pop up like that? Those are some of the questions that we're asking as we're in the middle of this series called Viral, and we're going through the book of Acts, but we're going through it in a really different way in the sense that we're really focused in on kind of the strategic nature of how the church expanded globally and how Christianity has become such the force in the world today that it has. And quite frankly, and I, and I hope that this is the question that you're going to ask is, how does that impact you? Like we. We, we really don't believe that as Christians we check our brains at the door. We really want to have an understanding of the historical context of what it is that we're up to here, and uh, this book of Acts really gives us a great understanding about that, and today I want to pick up exactly where Gordon left off last Sunday and look at chapters 8 and 9, and we're really going to focus in and look at who this guy, the Apostle Paul, is, and the incredible influence that he had on the global expansion of the church, uh, really single handedly. Uh, the funny thing is, like when you look at him when he's first mentioned in the scriptures, you realize pretty quick that nobody hated Christians more than this guy. I mean, in fact, he made it his life's mission to put the Christian faith to death, even if it meant doing it literally. As a Pharisee, Saul hated anything that would disrupt the traditions and the beliefs and the religion of the Jewish people. He was raised very religious. He was a very devout Jew. He was raised to eventually one day become a religious leader, which he did. But to him, this new counter-movement called that would soon be called Christianity was the height of blasphemy against the Jewish faith because it weakened the whole idea of the coming Messiah because they rejected the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. So Saul really had no issues with having the so-called Christians even killed uh, if that's what it took. He believed so strongly and passionately in what he was doing. And uh, like Gordon talked about last week with the stoning of, of Stephen, in uh, chapter 8, you know, just after Stephen is stoned to death and he cries out his last words as he's being executed by these religious leaders for his faith, the very next line after it talks about uh, Stephen's death, it says, And Saul was there giving approval to his death. So while Saul maybe didn't pick up a stone and become part of this group execution thing that was going on, he was certainly approving of what was being done in killing this guy that was such a strong, devout uh, follower of Jesus Christ. But listen to the, the uh, a couple of the verses after this because they're very impactful. It says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, I'm not going to spend any time on this, but one could really argue that Saul had as much... Impact on the global expansion of the church before he actually became a follower of Jesus Christ as he did after because because of his persecution, the believers in Jerusalem scattered. They went to different cities and because of that, their beliefs went with them and they were able to influence other people and bring other people to Jesus in those new locations Uh, that that they were scattered to. And I don't think it's coincidental that it mentions that they were scattered to Judea and Samaria. And if you remember the very first week, we talked about the Great Commission. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And so this is the beginning of the expansion of the church as resulting from Saul persecuting these Christians and scattering them abroad. It goes on in verse two and says, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. Does this sound like a good person to you? (laughs) Sound like somebody who's going to become a great leader of a church? Somebody who's persecuting Christians like this? Believe me when I say that every Christian in Palestine knew the name of Saul and not because he was well-liked or respected or some celebrity status, it was because he was feared. They didn't want to fall prey to being the next victim to be killed or put in prison as a result of their faith. And so Saul had become like this ruthless persecutor of anyone who associated themselves as being a follower of Jesus Christ. But here's the kicker. There came a point where all of a sudden it just stopped. Something changes in Saul something happened because he didn't just stop going after Christians just to let him off the hook because he was feeling sorry for him. He joins up. He becomes a card-carrying follower of Jesus Christ. He, he, he turns from being the number one enemy of the church into becoming one of them. Well, what happened to cause that sudden transformation? Well, from the passage that I read earlier, it appears that Saul has received extradition papers from the Jewish authorities that authorized him to arrest now people in remote locations who were found to have belonged to the way. Now, the way is a descriptive phrase that was used for the Christian faith. So before the Christian faith was called the Christian faith, before it was called Christianity, it was called the way. But for our purposes today, we're going to stick with Christians and Christianity, just for the sake of clarity in the message today, even though it's a tad premature here and where we're at in the book of Acts. So Saul and his traveling companions head to a town called Damascus, and they're going to go out and they're going to hunt down some good old Christian folk, and they're going to bring them back and have them either put in prison or killed for their faith. But while he was on the road to Damascus, something happens. And that passage says that suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, if you're Saul, you're freaking out right now. If this is what he thinks it is, and I think he knows what this is, he knows he's toast. And it certainly seems like his worst fears are coming true as he answers back in what I imagine to be a pretty shaken voice. Oh, who are you, Lord? As if he doesn't know. This is the literal come to Jesus moment that I'm sure that Saul never wanted to face, that he wanted to stay in his little world believing that Jesus was a fairy tale as he had professed him to be. But instead, he knows in his heart Who's on the other side of that voice? And then his worst fears are confirmed when that voice answers back and says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The whole story of Saul's conversion is absolutely fascinating. And if you haven't read it, I'd really encourage you to do it. But... What I want to do today is really focus in on Saul's conversion experience and the beginning of his ministry through the lens of how the Christian faith was started and his role in the global expansion of the church. This is, when you look at it from that standpoint, this is one of the most critical scriptures, stories, in the Bible. In fact, one scholar put it this way. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus the conversion of Saul was the most important event in human history. If Saul had remained a Jewish rabbi, we would not only be missing 13 of 27 books of the New Testament, but the Christian faith would still be limited to the region of Palestine. I mean, when you think about it, it makes sense, doesn't it? If your God and you want to take this Christianity thing from this little nugget that's going on in Jerusalem and kind of the surrounding areas, and you want to take this Christianity thing global, who are you going to pick to lead that charge? The guy who's most adamantly opposed to it, right? I mean, if you want one person on your team that could have the most impact, in hindsight, there's no question it would be solved. In that moment, God looked pretty ridiculous that he was picking this guy. But in hindsight, you see that Saul is the absolute perfect choice. If you could turn that passion that he had for persecuting the church and protecting the Jewish religion and traditions, and you could turn him to being now a defender of Christianity and an advocate of of the church, He'd be unstoppable. When you also then consider that Saul was born in a place called Tarsus, which is now in modern-day Turkey, that he was born to a Jewish family who had a dual identity, and by that I mean he had a Jewish education and upbringing, but he was outside of the mothership of Israel. He was outside of that, and so he had uh, also a Roman citizenship which gave him all the rights and privileges therein, and so he was fluent in Greek, and he was very uh, comfortable and understanding of Greek and Roman cultures. So, is his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus just a coincidence? Did Jesus somehow just randomly pick this guy Saul to now take the Christian faith to the next level out of all the people that he could pick? I don't think so. We don't know for sure what God was thinking, but if I'm God, and by the way, you should thank God that I'm not, (laughs) this guy is as strategic as it gets in order to, to complete the global expansion of the church, which is the plan. And then we see this transition that occurs inside of Saul in Acts 13.9, and it's so anticlimactic. All of a sudden, you have this little phrase that says, and then Saul, who was also called Paul. And that's it. Are you kidding me? That's all you got for me. It's like Luke just slips this little phrase in about Saul's name change to Paul like it was no big deal. But from this point forward in the Bible, this man who was once a ruthless persecutor, an enemy of the Christian faith, now takes on a new identity and is now called Paul. It's interesting, I think, to note at least that Saul is his God-given Jewish name. His parents were members of the tribe of Benjamin, and their son was named after Israel's first king, Saul, um, who also came from the same tribe. But now he symbolically takes on this name Paul, which is actually a very, very Greek name, which I think is not only symbolic of kind of his fresh start and new life, and by the way, maybe an alias for all the Christians that would like to have a little... Whack at the dude. But also taking on the Greek name because Paul will become the person who will quarterback the expansion of the Christian faith and transition it from what is now uh, confined within the Jewish culture into the rest of the world, the modern world at the time, which was very, very Greek at the time. Now here's the intriguing thing to me. As Paul begins to prepare for his new life, he does two things. The first thing is that Paul takes three years off. He goes out into some remote area of Arabia to pray and study and prepare himself for ministry. We don't know exactly what was going on, but that's what we are um, assuming. But then he does one more thing. And in Galatians uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, it says, Then after three years... What's the first thing he does? I went up to Jerusalem then to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Now, he's writing this in the context of trying to communicate to people that, look, I didn't become a Christian. I didn't become a follower of Jesus because some apostle converted me. I became a follower of Jesus because Jesus himself converted me. However, When he says that he went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, he uses a word there that is interesting because it's a Greek word, historio, and so that word acquaintance actually can be a little misleading because what it really is trying to get at is that he goes there to investigate or to interview. He's not going to have a beer with Peter. He's going to have a real in-depth discussion to try to get an understanding of something. And this shows that the, he, that the Apostle Paul actually begins to undergo his own investigation. But about what? Like, he is absolutely the smartest guy in the room when it comes to the Old Testament Scriptures and the Jewish tradition. He's had this personal encounter with Jesus. So what is it? What is it that he feels compelled to, like, build a case about? Now you have to remember that Jesus has already been killed, resurrected, and ascended back into heaven at this point. So Paul is at a bit of a disadvantage when it comes to becoming an apostle of Jesus because outside of his one-time encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, for all we know, he never got to spend any time with Jesus while he was alive. So if you want to get to know and understand who the person of Jesus was while he was alive, who do you turn to? the people that knew him best, right? And this is not very much time that has expired between Jesus ascending and the time that uh, Paul is, is figuring this thing out. So he goes to Peter and James, two of the core apostles. And, and as we look at other passages then, we begin to see what the focus of his investigation really is. So if you go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 through 9, this is the Apostle Paul again saying, he says this, "'For what I received, I passed on to you "'as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins "'according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, "'and that he was raised on the third day "'according to the Scriptures, and that,' here we go, "'and that he appeared to Peter, and then the twelve, "'after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers "'at the same time, most of whom are still living,' though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Well, how does he know that? How how does he know that Jesus appeared to, I mean, he's very, very meticulous in the way that he's describing who Jesus met with and appeared to at that time. And then he goes on, he says, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born, for I am the least Of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So it's obvious that he's still carrying around a bit of guilt. Even though he has been forgiven, he's taken on this new life, he still has this guilt about the things that he's done in his life. So a couple things come out of that passage. First of all, we see that Paul's investigation focused in on recording and documenting the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection. Why? Seriously, think about that. Why? Why is that the focus of what he's doing? When, who, where, in what order? Who are the two people that Paul specifically references in this text? James and Peter, right? The two people who Paul says in Galatians were the first two people that he went to personally interview regarding their knowledge of Jesus. And from there, Paul begins to expand his case to prove that the resurrection of Jesus was real. Do you think that in this moment, Paul has any credibility at all that if he goes around and just tells people that he knows that Jesus is alive because he saw a vision on a road to Damascus and he's the only one who saw Jesus, that anybody's going to buy that? You think so? Of course not. Not only does Paul not have any credibility at this point because everyone is very suspicious of him infiltrating the ranks of the Christians so that he can bring the church down. They are very suspicious of him in, the, in this beginning stage. But it's also just one man's subjective word that, yes, I encountered Jesus one-on-one in this kind of vision thing on the road to Damascus. It'd be like if I stood up here and said, hey, I encountered Jesus last night. Well, you guys would be looking at me like I'm crazy, wouldn't you? We also see that we're dealing with a situation that's very fresh. We're not talking about hundreds of years after the resurrection of Jesus, we're just talking about years. And so it's fresh in the minds of those eyewitnesses who saw Jesus firsthand. The interesting thing about this text is this is the only place in ancient literature where it is claimed that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at the same time after he was raised from the dead. Paul apparently talked to more than just Peter and James to back up what he's talking about in terms of the the resurrection appearances of Jesus because he talks about these other 500 people like he has intimate knowledge. He says, well, some some have died, but most of them are still alive like he knows exactly who these people are, which tells me that there was this overwhelming firsthand evidence at the time that Paul is writing these words that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And Paul went out of his way to investigate every aspect of the resurrection story. Why? Because Paul knew that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. He understood firsthand that unless you believe in a resurrected Jesus, nothing else about the Christian faith holds true. I wasn't going to go there, but uh, I'm going to go there. When you look at Acts chapter 5, there's a really interesting passage where Peter and some of the apostles have been arrested and they're standing before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is standing there trying to figure out what to do with these people, whether to kill them or put them in jail or let them go or whatever. And this guy named Gamaliel stands up and he gives this speech in front of the Sanhedrin. He says, and by the way, Gamaliel was the teacher and mentor of the apostle Paul, so it's not a big stretch when you say that Paul was probably in the room. We don't have any record of it, but it's probably true. So he gets up and he says, hey, look, do you remember that guy, Thaddeus? There was this guy who claimed to be all that. He was a great religious leader, and he had 400 people following. Remember that? And everybody's going, yeah, kind of. And you go, remember what happened? He got killed, and like his 400 people just went, psh, gone. And now there's nothing left of his little religion that he had. He said, and do you remember that guy, Judas of Galilee? You remember him? He had like these followers too, and they thought that they were great, and it was a great religion, and they were kind of popping up, and it was kind of the new thing. And you remember what happened? That dude got killed, and then all those people dispersed and nothing. He said, let me tell you something. If this thing is of man, and Jesus is in the tomb, this thing's dead, just like Jesus is. It's got no legs. This thing's going to die off on its own. Don't breathe any life into it. He said, however, if it's true, and if it is of God, ain't nothing you can do to stop it. So you might as well get out of God's way because you don't want to be fighting with God. So you have to believe that as Saul kind of is replaying, or Paul at this point, is replaying those words in his head, that he realizes that the critical piece that he has to stand behind, that he has to be able to stand up and say with all the evidence that backs him, is that Jesus Christ is no longer in the tomb. That he's been raised from the dead. And that's what makes this thing different. That's what makes this thing go viral. Paul spent so much of his life up to this point pursuing something that he had all wrong. That you have to believe that he wanted to make darn sure this time that he was going to get it right. And so Paul took this time to build his faith. We see from the writings of Paul that through those years that he went off by himself, that he was able to build this incredible relationship with Jesus Christ. That he fell in love with Jesus. That he was able to somehow break the bonds of his religion that he was raised in, and to be freed up to encounter and embrace the radical love of God. I know we have people in our own church here where, you know, you've come from a very strict religious upbringing, and you come to a church like Westridge, which is like a cult to your parents. You go, whoa, what are you doing? You have to believe that the Apostle Paul's parents are going, hey, You've changed your name. Like, what, what are you doing here? He gave up everything. But nobody preached the unconditional love and grace of God more than Paul. I mean, you can just hear it in his, in his words where he just has this guilt that he's carrying around where he just understands the depth of his sin of his past. And when you get that, you can't help but be overwhelmed by what God has done for you. Well, the Apostle Paul went on to complete what are known as his three missionary journeys that carried him into several different countries where he was shipwrecked and put into prison and beaten and left for dead, all in an effort to start what is estimated to be 20 churches in strategic locations around the world, which became the foundation Of the Christian faith to go global. It's incredible what this guy did. I mean, it is amazing. Paul's final journey ended in Rome, where tradition holds that Paul was arrested for his faith, that he was tortured and beaten and eventually beheaded by the evil emperor Nero in 67 AD. It's amazing to see how Saul's life played out completely different than the way that he was raised and and yet to be able to escape the mold of his life and do something completely different, to be somebody completely different. I really believe that the story of the conversion of Paul just gives us hope that if Jesus can take this ruthless op- opponent of the Christian faith, this person who gave his entire life, who dedicated his life to destroy Christianity, to hurt people who believed in Jesus to now then become so passionate about his love for Jesus that I have to believe that there is nobody in this world that is beyond the reach of God. Is it possible that we can transition our passion from something that has no meaning to something that can make a difference? Because I really believe that the difference between religion And having a living, breathing faith is that we stop doing things just because that's the way that we were raised and we start doing something that is transformative, not only in our lives, but in the lives of other people. To begin to see that we were placed in this world to do something. Every time that God wants to do something in the world, He has always used a human being to do it. God uses ordinary people like you and me. He takes ordinary you and me's, flawed, screwed up, struggling people, and he uses us to do extraordinary things. And he asks us to push back the gates of hell and to bring a little more heaven to this place. And I think that when you look at the life of Paul, you can't help but ask the question, what am I doing with my life? Like, what's the point? What's my purpose or mission? Like, what am I doing here? Jesus promised that if we will be his church, and I'm not talking about showing up at a church on a Sunday morning, but to really actually be his church, to be his people. God promises that he will use us to bring a light in a very dark place. And he will give us the power to bring a little piece of heaven to give people hope. The Apostle Paul gave his life so that we could have this church. He gave his life so that we could have the freedom to explore our faith, to come together, to be free, to to worship, and to build our faith in God so that we can be his church. And I pray that we here at Westridge that we will always be the church, that we will be the church of Jesus, that we will push back the gates of hell, and that we will be about bringing another little piece of heaven to a dark world and bringing people hope and making a difference.